This is the Sustainability Review Podcast. TSR is an online publication that shares sustainability perspectives from graduate and undergraduate scholars, scientists, and practitioners from across many disciplines. We have new voices for you this year. I'm Andrew Hudson. I'm a Master's of Arts student in ASU's School of Sustainability, where I work at the intersection of climate change, politics, and the humanities. My co-host today is Adam Gabriel. Adam, can you introduce yourself? Hey, everybody. Uh, Adam Gabriel here. I'm also an MA student in sustainability and also a researcher for the uh, Urban Futures Initiative at the uh, School for Future of Innovation and Society. Uh, excited to be here. I've got a wide range of interests. This touches on from uh, you know ancient history all the way up to uh, emerging technologies. So excited to see where we go with this. Yeah, I think Adam and I have both been on the podcast once before, and now we've been entrusted with veterans. It. Uh, so yeah, new year, new voices. We hope we won't be the only voices you'll hear on the podcast this year. Today, we are talking about a topic that is near to my heart, climate fiction. And we have a guest today, Joey Eshrich. Joey is editor and program manager at ASU's Center for Science and the Imagination. He is also assistant director of Future Tense Now, a partnership between ASU and Slate. Is that correct? And New America. And New America. DC think tank. Uh, so, Joey, that's a mouthful of impressive titles. Welcome to TSR. Thank you. It's, yeah, it's, it's too many titles. I usually just pick one or the other and roll with it. Yeah, well, I wanted to load you up. I feel uh, good. Can you start by telling us a bit about CSI and, and your work there? Sure. Uh, the Center for Science and the Imagination uh, started in 2012, so we're a little over five years old now. And our mission is to get people thinking creatively and ambitiously about the future. And we do that by bringing people together across disciplines, uh, you know, people from the sciences and engineering, people from education, the arts, humanities, and we team them up on creative projects, often creating uh, research-based or, or sort of fact-based, reality-based visions of the future, so things that um, will get us hopefully thinking imaginatively, but also um, will draw on knowledge that experts from different disciplines uh, bring to the table. Awesome. So. We, we have you on today because CSI is running its second climate fiction contest. Yes, Short actually, just to include all of the different acronyms and titles, uh, this, is, uh, this contest is hosted by ASU's Imagination and Climate Futures Initiative, which is yes. uh, uh, our center as well as the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing. Yeah, so there's a lot of collaborations here, mm -hmm. uh, and we are now... Uh, elbowing the sustainability uh, department into this uh, via this podcast that we're the Global Institute of Sustainability yeah. was a partner on the f on the, on the, on the first, first round uh, of this contest and, and we're and we're hoping they they you know that we are able to get more participation from sustainability in the future and I'm sure uh, a, f a few of our judges will be sustainability scientists and scholars from ASU as well so it is you know we're we hardly have to elbow in on them they're already kind of there. That's uh, GIS for anybody at home that's keeping track of the acronyms. GIOS. 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 So the second Clarify contest has a you have a deadline that is heavy on my mind because I'm trying to write something for it. February 28th of this year. So we are hoping that this podcast will inspire a few people to go out and write something. And I guess I should 
bring a little full disclosure here. Uh, I co-wrote. Well, maybe some we, somebody else should say it so it seems more humble. I'd be delighted to do that. Yeah, Please. Joey, why don't you tell the, the listeners at home how important Andrew is? <laughs> Uh, so Andrew uh, <laughs> co-wrote a story called Sunshine State with uh, with Adam Flynn that was actually the grand prize winner of the first climate fiction contest, and we judged it blind. So there's no uh, there's no sneaky stuff going on in the background of the contest. We uh, we were as surprised that it was a familiar name, at least to me. Um, we had, our center had worked with Adam, but we were as as surprised as uh, as, as everybody was because there were we got uh, 700 plus entries, and so it was kind of Awesome that we had uh, that we had some some folks we knew in in the in the in the final round as well as uh, uh, at least one other person who was an ASU graduate student. So that was cool, and we weren't sure that would happen. Seven hundred entries from what was it, sixty-seven countries? Yep, that's correct. Really cool. And uh, yeah, and I gotta say, working on that started me down a whole trajectory of research and and craft that I'm very pleased to be on. But we have a new contest. I don't want to. We want to talk somewhat about the previous book, and we also want to engage people on this new one. Um, so I have here, uh, I want to read. Well, why don't we, before we get into the specifics, maybe have Joey and yourself as an old hand that have, to me, will look at me as kind of the novice or the uninitiated here, uh, to, and the listeners at home. What exactly is climate fiction? What separates it from science fiction or other types of uh, other genre fiction? Sure, I can start. You want yeah. to just? You, I'll start, and you can jump in whenever you want. Uh, Andrew, in some ways, knows, you know, I think more about the jostling about this genre label than I do, because um, he's kind of in it as a creator. Mm. But climate fiction was, you know, really intended as a kind of. Uh, Iteration of or kind of knockoff of science fiction. It was mm. the the idea of uh, futuristic stories that uh, foregrounded or sort of thoroughly took into account climate change as a variable in in the future of human societies and civilizations. Um, I think there is a sense, there's a sort of tacit sense in the term that like traditional and classic science fiction, as well as uh, contemporary realistic literature, doesn't really talk about or imagine climate change as a sort of a variable or, or a driver and that there was a need for a literature that really took it into account really thought deeply about the effects that climate change would have on people's lives um, it's it's a deeply contested term uh, as a lot of things in emerging literary genres are some people think it you know feels a little too limiting or that it, that it, that it yokes climate fiction too much to science fiction because climate fiction doesn't have to be speculative and science fictional in any sense, uh, necessarily. Some people think it sounds a little eat your vegetables, including some people who uh, climate fiction folks say write climate fiction, like uh, Margaret Atwood. Her novels include a lot of yeah. a lot of climate, and often her her um, Mad Adam trilogy is considered a, a sort of masterwork of climate fiction. But she doesn't; she's never claimed the term herself. Um, right. I actually was emailing with someone a little while ago when we were promoting this contest who runs the web the website Ecofiction, which is this great clearinghouse for fiction that's sort of environmentally uh, aware. Mm -hmm. And uh, she really doesn't like the term climate fiction uh, for a variety of reasons. And, and so, you know, she calls her website Ecofiction for that for that reason. But uh, 
Andrew, what else am I missing, or what else is there to talk about? Yeah. Without getting too much into the weeds of like genre uh, terminology. Genre terminology. You know, one argument that I've seen that I find really interesting is the argument that all science fiction needs to be climate fiction now, mm-hmm. uh, and that if you like morally it should be. Yeah, sorry. that if you are writing science fiction in the year 2018, and you are not in some level writing climate fiction, that you are doing a disservice right. to the the future and and to the genre because uh, even if you are talking about something a thousand years from now where you're we have a galactic empire or what have you you sort of have to ask like okay how do we get through this particular set of of calamities kim stanley robinson calls what we're in the emergency century saying that we see some uh, extremely well-known science fiction novelist. I always call him the legendary Kim Stanley Robinson. The legendary. Loves, right, but, and he was uh, just here. He was, yeah, he was actually our, our lecturer last year for this initiative, the same initiative that hosts the, the contest. But yeah, he calls the, the next hundred years the emergency century and says this is like, we, we have to find a way through this if we want to do any of the exciting things that are in some of our favorite science fiction stories. I you would, know, I would like to see that word written out and put a T before the C there because you're seeing a lot of new emergent things during that same emergency century. And I thought uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's story, the one he had most recently written uh, when he came to speak last semester. New York 2140. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, That is a good example, because coming into this, I'm I'm wondering, you said it has to include climate in some uh, significant way, but you know, as, somebody that's familiar with science fiction and fantasy and, and literature, and how strong does that have to be? And as I understand, that book is a romance that takes place in a world with rising sea levels, but it's not necessarily the characters in, in confrontation directly. Like, that's not what the story is. Yeah, it's not is. about the Paris Agreement or something. Yeah, yeah I, I think, uh, and to tie back what you just said back to what Andrew said earlier, uh, a lot of science fiction writers have mentioned climate in their stories as part of the world building for a long time. Bruce Sterling, uh, uh, when he was at ASU, once sort of offhandedly told us that you know he felt like he'd been writing climate fiction since the 80s because every novel he had written or short story that it was you know significant and had enough, enough world building and it had some references to climate change, even if they were fairly minor. Mm-hmm. And some things that are tagged as climate fiction, I mean, certainly most of them have a plot that's not about you know parts per million. And uh, you know, climate is often sort of a backdrop. Like climate chaos is is a backdrop in some ways. Uh, there's some stories that are directly about it. One of the really famous novels recently that's considered climate fiction is Paolo Bacigalupi's *The Wind-Up Girl*, which, you know, certainly it it turns on climate issues, but it's about robotics and agriculture and uh, you know issues about colonialism, slavery, colonialism, and, yeah. and you know, so. Uh, climate change or climate chaos or whatever term you prefer is kind of a catalyst Uh, and it's a necessary precondition for the story to happen the way it does but it's not like the characters are constantly having discussions it's not the day after tomorrow no one one thing that i think is really key here is is science fiction has an implicit theory that science is in some ways, the determining factor of what is driving, what is going to drive social change into the future, right? That's why it's called science fiction and not future fiction. And so when we say climate fiction, we're in some ways making the argument that science isn't actually the the biggest player in the room for at least 
some period of time that, that it's not what science comes up with that is going to determine our future. It's how the planet behaves with us in it. Mm -hmm. I like that. Um, so before we go on to the ex for excerpt and talking more specifically, I just had a, a, just two questions kind of, kind of about where it's situated amongst the other genres and maybe some of the internal debates. You mentioned it's kind of controversial in some senses. So we were talking before, and I'm wondering, are people now trying to kind of posthumously apply the cli-fi label to a lot of Philip K. Dick's works, like Do Androids Dream of Robotic Sheep, or what a lot of people will know as Blade Runner? Is that, are people saying, because obviously climate's a huge part of that. Yes. The, the short answer to that is yes, I think people are. And I think peop, there is a, you know, this is becoming a kind of, active academic term and an mm. academic terrain. Here we are at a university talking about it, but we're not the only ones. Uh, I think, you know, we've done a lot of work at our center around Frankenstein, which is in its 200th anniversary year. A lot of people say that's climate fiction. Uh, I, you know, I get what they're saying. I don't really, I'm kind of ambivalent. I don't know. Um, because end because up it was in the written. It's up in the North Pole. You know, it was mm. written during a year, it was conceived of during the year without a summer when oh, there was, yeah, uh, right. when there was a major global climate event because of a volcanic eruption right. and uh, many of Shelley's descriptions in the book of landscapes and stuff are drawn from her diaries at the time so she mm -hmm. is describing a climate changed environment even though it's a, it was global cooling uh, because of the a uh, volcanic ash in the atmosphere at that time but you know I don't know if that's helpful or not I'm not at the vanguard of theorizing about this really um, we're the contest is a way to kind of hopefully encourage people to think more seriously about climate and to write more uh, and hopefully to create good stories. I am not certain what the best categorization is. The other thing I should say that gets at your question a little bit in terms of where the term gets applied, uh, and it's relevant because of the way we're framing our contest this year, we don't want to necessarily buy into the idea that climate fiction is science fiction plus climate. Uh, one of the things uh, that I think was really valuable that our colleagues at the Piper Center for Creative Writing uh, said after our first contest is they kind of wanted to embrace a, a, a sort of wider range of genres and have, uh, you know, realistic fiction. Barbara Kingsolver's flight behavior is often considered a, a sort of climate fiction novel and it's not, doesn't really partake of science fictional tropes or kind of literary devices at all, um, just as an example. But also, you know, things that are more experimental or avant-garde or kind of poetic. We actually did have a unexpectedly have a piece of poetry in the first anthology, although we kind of argued a little bit about whether it was, mm. it, whether it fit the contest and whether we were kind of doing an apples and oranges thing and being unfair, but it was a piece of narrative poetry. So we kind of, we actually decided not to ask for poetry this year that wasn't narrative, but we, we did invite kind of all genres, and I'm interested to see if we get different kinds of stories, because there was a sort of science fiction and fantasy mm. bent to what we got last year. And I think it was just the way the term was framed. We didn't really ever say that we wanted science fiction stories, but the way that we described the contest, you know, kind of pointed uh, writers toward the future. And because of the way our center, you know, are the, the sort of uh, intellectual identity of our center, I think people assumed it was a science fiction contest. Right. I mean, you so. could have a contemporary setting and it'd still be climate fiction, right? The other, um, did you want to, I just had one more question before we carried on. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to quote you something you co-wrote uh, okay. in the introduction to the first collection. Sure. Um, Y'all write, the literary movement of climate fiction is often credited with playing a major part in mobilizing societies to act on climate change. Climate fiction has exploded over the last decade, 
enjoys growing popularity, art and literature have begun the much needed work of humanizing climate change. And I was I was rereading that today and was a little surprised and gladdened to see that that you all think that this is having an impact already. So the yeah, you know, the 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 person who I think did the most intellectual work and writing in that introduction is our co-editor Manana Milkerate, who is a a postdoctoral fellow at ASU and is now a professor at uh, Purdue University in Indiana. And um, she, her research before she started working on climate fiction, which is a, a sort of a, a big part of her work now, but uh, was on transnational climate negotiations, which put her in a grim frame of mind. But I think what I, I believe what that line for her meant is that in kind of traveling around policy circles around climate, um, around these sort of climate negotiators and, and their colleagues, she felt like they were all very aware of climate fiction. They were all very aware of the fact that this was becoming more of a topic for literature. and uh, Yeah, I think, you know, Netflix had this great show, the title of which is escaping me at the moment, um, about uh, a clean energy transition in Northern Europe and the sort of the geopolitical disruptions that set off. Um, there's been a, a, a lot more attention to this. I mean, if you just read, if you just read the, the sort of the big papers, if you read the papers of record, you'll see a lot more coverage of climate. And uh, Mignana has been advancing the argument recently that the uh, Game of Thrones it has, a, has, a, has a climate element oh, and the, you know, the winter is coming. And, you know, the, the, the monstrosity that's, you know, plaguing the land personified as, a, as, a, as, as weather in some ways, yeah. or, or, you know, maybe weather being cold. personified as zombies or cold. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, so I think... I mean, it, and and I think it makes sense to me that the people, and it's certainly climate change is still in the U.S. extremely partisan. But I think this this is you know art helps bake this into people's sense of reality right. and helps make it more of an active issue for folks, uh, and and really emphasizes the ethical stakes, which is what I like about storytelling around climate change. Is it it shows us the human cost of of climate chaos, and it it turns it into an uh, you know an ethical issue that we have to grapple with in terms of our action or inaction on the, on, yeah. you know, on climate. Certainly wanna... we've seen it uh, more accessible through just mainstream media this year with Houston and Puerto Rico and all the uh, upset going on, their disruption in the government with the EPA and whatnot, so certainly it's going to be part of, it's going to be on people's minds more often. I'm curious artistically where it fits in with some of these other emerging genres or, or areas of thought like uh, I know Andrew talks about solar punk and I know cyberpunk is part of it but also I'm I'm thinking that Afrofuturism might intersect so are there any of these are we seeing kind of a suite of genres arise kind of together I think that's a good way to put it there is a, a set of different approaches that is in my opinion creating a new uh, movement in science fiction broadly that sort of follows on the, I think the the 2000s and the early 2010s, we really saw a genre proliferation in contemporary science fiction, and and now there seems to be a bit of a convergence of uh, visionary sci-fi, which forwards more social justice issues. Um, Afrofuturism, indigenous futurisms, different 
variations on eco-punk or solar punk and just lots of different people playing with two or even three of those types of labels mm. as they, they try to move the genre away from uh, you know more of the either space westerns or heroic uh, engineering and any of the, the sort of the post cyberpunk kind of, of world where you had you had cyber prep and steampunk and all these sorts of of things that were, were very interested in uh, in genre tropes and how to manipulate them. And I think we we're seeing people both try to create new genre tropes as opposed to just manipulate the old ones and try to shed some of that and tell stories that, that don't that have a goal that isn't genre dominated. The other thing that's happening within the genre that relates to a few of the sort of movements or subgenres you brought up is that it's become increasingly verboten among at least I think most people in science fiction to say that that, that literature is apolitical. And that was a refuge of a certain era of science fiction was to say, well, science is about rationality. And so these stories are about how scientific rationality and efficiency can you know, help us solve big problems or can animate really interesting narratives uh, around you know, people applying the scientific method more broadly. This is how a lot of people metabolized Isaac Asimov's work, that mm. he was applying sort of enlightenment rationality to the planet, to galactic systems. I don't know that that's how he would have described his own work, but that's how other people kind of processed it. Um, there was just, I just saw on Twitter the other day when I was, you know, just checking in quickly that there was like yet another sort of little argument brewing about some, somebody had said in an interview somewhere that like they missed the era of apolitical fiction and, and, and people were upset about that. And I don't think a few years ago, I don't think people would have been activated in such a way to say like science fiction and visions of the future are inherently political and we can't get away from it. And so we should in some ways be more forthright and try to be as uh, artistically creative and inventive with the awareness that we're being political as possible instead of trying to pretend that we're in some sanctified space or that we're just like speculating and making educated guesses using the best information as if we can predict the future uh, perfectly and, 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 and not take a side. I've been using the phrase post-normal fiction uh, and referencing referencing post-normal post science, science uh, which is sort of a formulation we use a lot in sustainability that describes how when you have science that is both high stakes and uh, high uncertainty or very high stakes and still a regular amount of uncertainty or very uncertain and normal stakes but anything that sort of goes past a certain sum of those two factors is no longer doing the normal Kuhnian scientific method and is no longer just advocacy or consultancy but is is, is a, a, a type of practicing science that is new and, and post that normal era. And, and I like the idea that we should be considering other types of practices and ways of engaging with, with knowledge to be post-normal as well, because they are inherently political. I mean, you know, Michael Crichton wrote a best-selling novel claiming that climate change was a hoax, and he was called to testify on behalf of climate deniers in Congress. That, for me, is a demarcating point at which you can no longer write about the climate and expect it to be 
not a part of the conversation that we are having politically. Yeah, well, art is always filtered through your own social lens, you know, as much as people, you know, a big a central idea of the of post-normal science is, yes, the ontological uncertainty that's unavoidable, but also uh, the admission, realization that the, the scientists that process the data, no matter how hard they try, it's um, a fool's errand to be completely objective, right? So if you understand uh, art as something that's always constructed in a social setting uh, and influenced by that setting, then you know even if you are a vehement denier of climate change now, it's still going to inf influence your vision that you put down on the page or on the screen. I have a quote here from Kim Stanley Robinson from his introduction or foreword to the Everything Change book. He was the the lead judge, or I guess the final judge. He was the final word. He was the final word. Um, and he wrote, I think, a very compelling piece that starts off the Everything Change book. He writes, we decide what to do based on the stories we tell ourselves. So we very much need to be telling stories about our responses to climate change and the associated massive problems bearing down on us and our descendants. Yeah. And he, I think he goes on to say that literature is a part of creating reality. Absolutely. So, well, I think, you know, that what goes with that quite well is the idea that you brought up about Crichton, which is like science fiction writers, and my center is part of this industry, uh, are becoming experts. Like we bring them in to consult with people with PhDs and people mm -hmm. who work in think tanks and, and you know journalists and, and other kinds of like quote experts. We put science fiction writers in the conversation with those people, and we do our very best to make it feel like in, in a level playing field. We you know we don't want the science fiction writers to feel like illustrators or spectators. They're actually just experts as well. Clarify just to interject. That's. Is that more because they've done a lot of research and they're sort of uh, a lame lay expert, or is it because they have so much experience with visioning possible outcomes? I think it's more the latter, but sometimes the former. I mean, it depends on the writer, but some writers are incredibly uh, well-versed in certain fields. Like Neil Stevenson famously knows quite a bit about physics and rocketry. Only fiction I've ever read with footnotes. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, Robinson does an insane amount of research no matter what he does. Um, but yeah, these people are, they have a fair amount of expertise. They're being treated as experts by government agencies, think tanks. The Canadian government pays science fiction writers uh, to work with their military. The U.S. military is increasingly interested in this stuff, NASA. Um, and in addition to that, you know, science fiction is such a large part of the media industry at this point, you know, uh, film, TV, video games. So science fiction has a lot of cultural power. So to get to Andrew's point, I think, you know, this sense of responsibility uh, the responsibility of the writer. I think all of these new subgenres, including climate fiction and these new tendencies within within speculative fiction and, and within literature more generally, are, are kind of people being more aware that they're being seen as as experts and cultural luminaries. Science fiction is no longer the the quote ghetto that Ursula Le Guin called it several decades ago. Science fiction is, has has become a huge part of the the monoculture, and so it has an enormous role. Uh, whether it wants it or not, in determining uh, our imagination of, of ourselves and what's possible and what kind of futures we can and can't have. Yeah, I think in Stan's opening, he articulates that if you want to write accurate, uh, true-to-life 
fiction about the current moment, things are changing so fast that in some ways you actually need to write into the near future in order to get at what's actually happening. Perhaps because, as William Gibson famously said, the future's already here, it's just not evenly distributed yet. There's some podcasts you're not allowed to say that quote anymore. Is that true? It's, it's becoming an increasingly verboten quote. People, people in uh, in tech journalism tend not to like that quote. Well, there's one other one he says, which is, if but you it's. Really I mean, I I think it's true. I use yeah. it too. I think <laughs> it's de- it's deeply it's... true, um, and we are embracing that quote on this podcast. I think the issue is is it's almost used so much in like Stay NPR here. style journalism about science oh. and technology that it's people are stop thinking about what it means and are just like, mm, yeah, that feels from. good. Yeah. yeah, you start to notice how there's a lot of you know the gestalt theory the 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 whole is greater than the sum of its parts that's a misquote but i i'll back you up andrew that we're okay with using it yeah I, as long as it is right. not in service of hyping some particular piece of gadgetry right. because we all know that the the future is already here because we saw it in Houston. We mm-hmm. saw it in Puerto Rico, yeah. And we're gonna we're gonna see it again in a few months. Yeah, you've basically coming flip, back. Flip the normal use of that quote on its head, or the traditional use, which is the traditional use is to say like, a, a, you know, a few early adopters have the best possible technology yeah. and all the robots that they know what to do with. But it's actually, yeah, it's it's true. It's equally true for calamity. Yeah, you should do a whole episode on just on that quote. I think that would be well, great. We can get a skeptic in here. The other Not one me. that also speaks to the point, I think, from William Gibson is you uh, you want to understand something, look at it while it's coming apart, something along those lines. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, we're seeing the beginning throes of the, well, certainly these old kind of narratives we've told ourselves about science or about our effect on the environment, but also across social situations and equity distribution. Yeah. Well, look at South are, Africa. A lot, of, a lot of people might say that things are starting to come apart at the moment. If you look at South Africa right now, it's not that they weren't aware that they had a water scarcity issue, but that mm. didn't it didn't really just because we know that doesn't mean we can prepare for it. Right. You know, knowledge knowledge and information doesn't equal a kind of actionable plan to solve a problem. There there's a coming apart, but I think there's also we could argue a coming together. There's a there's emergence of something new. Well, and an emerging of different calamities at the same time, mm. right? I mean that you know, while we are trading on Gibson, one of his, I think, most powerful concepts that he's introduced in recent years is the jackpot from his novel, The Peripheral, which sp- I'm going to spoil it. So if you want to read the novel, Spoiler it's a minor question. How many years question. old is that now? <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe four, four or five. Yeah. Um, it's sort of a mystery. What is this dividing event between the people in the near future who are communicating through time with people in the further future? And it comes out that the the event was just everything that's already happening kind of getting worse and converging and getting tangled up together. There was no uh, pandemic. There was no meteor. There was nothing. It was just we didn't turn the car around or and that, that's where we're going. And in, in, so in his book, he you know, describes it as a, I think a decimation of like 80% of the population. And the people on the other side are like, whew, bullet dodge there. Mm. Like, this is actually kind of great now that we're on the other side of it. It's nice for us. Um, so that's the jackpot. That, that uh, 
rises to one of the questions I have for you guys and also maybe a nice segue into your piece, but it seems like you mentioned climate, uh, cli-fi, since we're using this frame, is already a big part of our media and movies and such, what, science fiction movies, you could say Mars, The, the Martian, and um, all the disaster movies recently. Uh, is it always, it seems to be depicted in this dystopian future, this negative sense. So in, the, in this uh, iteration of the genre in the, in the literary, uh, is that the case too, that it's overweighted with kind of negative outlooks or are we seeing some positive stuff? I know Andrews to me was largely a, a positive, uh, an optimistic vibe so I think, and I'll, I want to let Andrew talk about his own work, and I know he's going to read a little bit from it, but um, I think a lot of the stories in our collection, which is called Everything Changed, the collection of the first uh, set of finalists from the first uh, contest, had a lot of stories that I, I would call stories about m people muddling through. Hmm. You know, a lot of people's lives, we were just talking about inequality, basically. A lot of people's lives are marked by a series of catastrophes anyway. I mean, and, and that's true of many privileged people's lives, but it's, it's even more so true of people who, um, who, are, who are sort of underserved and under-resourced. You know, their lives are very difficult for a lot of reasons. It could be illnesses, or it could be pollution in their neighborhood, or it could be, you know, criminality, or the carceral state, or, you know, give it whatever name you want. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of these stories are not, they borrow, they borrow from existing story structures, you know, adventures, thrillers, romances. Uh, you know, stories about communities pulling together, but they are set against a, a sort of dire set of environmental drivers that are putting pressure on people. I think a lot of, you know, Andrew's story is not the only story in the collection that kind of does show uh, new kinds of social formations. People uh, organizing themselves differently and organizing themselves differently with respect to the resources that they consume uh, to deal with a radically changed environment. Um, some of these stories are somewhat bleak. There's one about a guy dying alone on an island. Uh, but uh, we, we didn't get that many the road-style apocalypses, and I'm mm -hmm. glad. And I think that our judges and panel weren't really drawn to those. In some ways, those are not very scientifically accurate. You know, if you look at right. just like a bombed-out, decimated wasteland, like certainly could happen. But it's not the story space that partakes of, of the science the most, and I think you know, the other thing that we noticed, and it's in our introduction to the anthology, um, is a lot of the stories were about families or close friends or people who were romantically entangled with each other. A lot of these authors were processing, this isn't true of every story in the collection, but a lot of these authors were processing climate change and its effects in, in the grammar of personal relationships and small communities. Um, there are climate stories that are a bit more wide-ranging and they get really into geopolitics, you know, uh, Paolo Bacigalupi's The Water Knife, which takes place in and around Arizona, is, uh, you know, it has a lot, it has personal through lines, but it's also a story about geopolitical jostling between U.S. states. Mm -hmm. um, but I think a lot of people are are interested in, in, in some of the same conflicts that, that animate contemporary realistic literature or, or any sort of, you know, storytelling tradition, which is often like drama between people. There's just new pressures on those people. Mm. I don't know what yeah. think about that. I think there's increasingly a little bit of a sense that we've come to the end of the usefulness of the dour uh, prognostications and, and sort of foreboding uh, tales that just show, try to 
hammer in how bad it, it's going to be. Uh, I think there's a place for that, and I definitely think that like the stakes should feel high, and you should feel like uh, a lot has changed. But for me, the more interesting stories are about people that uh, are either finding really interesting ways to thrive in those conditions or about societies or groups of people that are making good choices, right? And, and for me, that's kind of where, where the action is. It's not just how bad is it going to get, but how could we find our way through mm-hmm. by making some, some good choices? And then what are those good choices and what do they look like when we're doing them? The author, Paolo Bacigalupi, who's another one of our, we've been very lucky, we've had good lecturers. So one of our other lecturers in this uh, Climate Futures series was was Paolo, who's, who's sort of like, in some ways, considered like the big climate fiction author uh, and he writes, out there now. He writes a lot of, I, I've heard described as broken futures, I think he calls. That's really his, good. His That's word. a great term his, for it. He's very good with terms and and, uh, and labels and stuff. I think he's, re- he's really smart about that. Um, he said, uh, or a story he likes to tell, and I heard him tell it, I think it was in his lecture, but he also, I heard him tell it to people as he was meeting them is to kind of describe his outlook, is uh, the aftermath of the Fukushima meltdown. So he went to Japan, I think as part of, there may have been like a delegation of creative people, like sort of writers and artists, mm-hmm. and he went to sort of see the aftermath of that calamity. And, you know, it's Japan, it's a much more communitarian society, but he described seeing kind of the opposite of the sort of Mad Max or the road situation that, in fact, people uh, were much more altruistic, were much more willing to share resources, were, um, you know, extremely willing to sort of, like, pitch in and, 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 and work together to make sure everybody had what they needed. He, you know, and, and, and he used that to, to, to try to describe, like, putting moral stakes on the kinds of, you know, uh, post-catastrophe narratives we tell. And he mm-hmm. says, you know, if we keep telling stories about everybody, you know, going to their bunkers and hoarding gold and guns and you know we're gonna you know we may actually get that future those actually those stories inflame people's existing paranoia about other people and about resource scarcity uh but in fact you know in his telling you know so the history of people bouncing back and communities bouncing back from calamity um is actually much more about sharing and pulling together and not about fragmentation and violence yeah a a big influence on um on the work that I've been doing and that that I've done with Adam Flynn is Rebecca Solnit's book, A Paradise Built in Hell, which I think also sort of touches on those themes of, you know, maybe this is actually our shot to uh, build a, a very different way of relating to each other. And, you know, I think, you know, Naomi Klein has a similar kind of argument in, sure. in This Changes Everything. Uh, where she kind of says that, you know, everything we need to do to save the planet from climate change, these are also things we need to do to live prosperously and save each other from capitalism and vice versa. You know, the the things that uh, are really going to, in the long term, make a a sustainable world are going to be things that also leave people happier and healthier. And, you know, for me, that is, is a real sort of guiding star because I, I do think that there's got to be, even though we often talk about solving the climate crisis with, with, in terms of cost, like, oh, man, this is just going to cost so much. And the longer we wait, it's going to cost more. Like, there's a, there's a dollar amount that is coming up due. 
and someone's going to have to, and this is going to be sacrifices from our children and their children and, and for generations to come that we're living high on the hog at their expense. I think that while that's true from, from some ways, we also can envision a way in which dealing with the existential crisis part of this calamity gives us the way to get to a better world. So Absolutely. I've, uh, in my own research for my degree, you know, I've looked at the psychological effects of, you know, degradation of communities, which are, you know, historically speaking, the strongest um, uh, way of coping with uh, external disasters or existential disasters. Uh, we, uh, and one thing that I found in there in the research was this phenomenon they call post-traumatic growth. Mm. You know, that as the recovery happens, it, they feel empowered to make all these changes in their lifestyle and their social networks and their outlook that go well beyond the trauma or whatever other psychological condition they w were coping with in the first place. So it just opens the door to uh, all these other unintended positive consequences, to use one of our SOS terms. Yeah. Adam, you brought up the shock doctrine. I sort of heard you say it almost happened yeah. to your breath, and that's a, another amazing book, anyway, Klein. But what Andrew's talking about is almost like it's the it's the converse reaction or something. It's the obverse. I'm not sure what exactly the right word is, but it's you know uh, the uh, that, that book is about how natural disasters and and, and different kinds of calamities provide a, a kind of vacuum into which uh, you know corporations and neoliberal moneyed interests come and sort of privatize public goods and. Mm radically change the character of communities and, and in, in, in Klein's view for the worse, uh, it's it's almost as if that same vacuum and that same opportunity space opens up. But, you know, you could imagine positive things flowing into it, not negative things. Uh, I, I think that it's interesting the way that, that, that those two Klein books kind of show two different possible ways own, forward from the same kind of story. There's a character catalyst. in there that kind of represents that interest as well. All right. So, so I thought I could read the opening of Sunshine State, which I think is uh, a good way of jostling your, your brain into a different set of expectations mm -hmm. that a, a, a sort of a climate-focused, forward-looking tends to require. Ladies and gentlemen, in his own words, in his own voice, Andrew Hudson. Ramses was in Galveston when she first heard about the myth. It was early May and unseasonably hot, whatever that meant. Out beyond the thin sliver that remained of the island, iron-dark clouds gathered every morning on the horizon. Ominous, an omen even, sign of tribulations to come. That's the line she gave the locals, and while they didn't buy it, she stirred superstitions they did not know they had. The holdouts were cranky oil men, who would be damned if some no-drill liberal insurance salesmen were going to force them out of vacation homes that had been in their families for generations. Ramses started with a clear statement of her purpose and then let them, them rant. She nodded gravely and raised her warm beer to toast to their wittier insights. They felt heard. She really sympathized with their concerns. But weren't the bedbugs back this year, she asked, and for dramatic effect, she dug into her armpit with her index finger and pulled out a plump louse. She smeared it bloody on the table. 
On one hand, she ticked off the cost of extermination, the cost of flood mitigation, the fees to the telcos to maintain coverage, the rescue fines she knew for a fact the state would pass next year. How long would Congress really force the insurance companies, her employers, to honor policies on doomed towns? They were underwater already, they just didn't know it. And Tennessee was really nice these days. The rains were good and kept the lakes full for boating and fishing and swimming. A housing boom was surely coming with a pretty penny in it for anyone who get, could get in on the ground floor. Then Ramsey swigged the last of her beer and gave them a long, even look, one she'd perfected negotiating with old patient Pashtun warlords. The look was about making herself a mirror. Admit it, you know where you'll feel in 10 years. That's how they taught it in the conflict de-escalation special school. Ghost of Christmas future shit. Her earnest sympathies unkinked the secret doubts of those damned by history. The buyout wasn't generous but they took it. And then there was a great detail in there, by the way, with the louse being smeared bloody on the table. I smiled when I read that the first time. You know, Galveston, uh, the research I did sort of leaning up to this, uh, I saw that Galveston has had a bunch of bed bug problems yeah. and uh, various other kinds of, of uh insect issues and all of those things are things that are going to be escalated right. by the climate crisis so you do this great job I, I noted it when we were talking earlier of kind of throwing just out there to float around these these kind of uh, auxiliary details I likened it to a writer named China Meville who just throws out these really tantalizing details about the world surrounding the scene or the characters that uh, you know, it's not even necessary to go into it, like to go off on a tangent about what, and explain necessarily what it means, but it gives the world so much more texture and makes it, you know, living and breathing. And the fact that, you know, so many of those examples and references uh, about swimming and boating and the state is going to, not some new world order, but the state is going to pass this law next year, it makes it really feel uh, imminent, like near to now. Yeah, and I mean, this is, we set the story in 2039, right? So it's not, it's not a, a, a really far throw from where we are now. Did we do, like, did you do a little plot synopsis? Uh, yeah, so where the story goes from there, Ramses, our, our sort of main protagonist, ends up getting recruited to be a, a negotiator that helps a rogue ecological mega project get off the ground in the Everglades by an old army buddy of hers. And it, they end up coming into conflict with the, the state of Florida, who sort of shows up to shake them down for a bunch of money, which they don't have because they're anarchist uh, sort of gift economy radicals. So they, they have to go and sort of recruit some help from some dashing Cuban climate resistance gurus to come back and help them resist this uh, siege by the the state government. And uh, in the end, though, there's there's sort of a 
you know, we need to come up with a, a, a climate ex machina kind of oh, phrase, right? Um, ex machina. Yeah, God out of the sky or something. Gaia ex machina. Gaia ex machina. Okay. Uh, another TM. Another TM of of a, a climate event that occurs that they are well positioned to uh, be a part of dealing with in terms of receiving refugees and, and uh, helping Miami sort of struggle through. And that's kind of where, where we leave it. But it's, um, you know, when Adam and I sort of sat down to write this story, what we wanted, what we realized was we wanted to, to tell sort of an optimistic uh, story that, that reckoned with the full sort of weight of the different failures that were, were mm-hmm. kind of different ways that uh, society and the climate were both being hollowed out and, and getting more precarious. Um, and so we, we were sort of casting around for a way that would not feel contrived. And we realized that, that what we actually wanted to talk about was was Florida and how weird Florida is and how the, the, the local character of a place is forever going to be in, intertwined with its climate future. Mm. Uh, and so we, we read a bunch of Florida man style stuff to concoct our, our characters, uh, some of whom are a little ridiculous. Two things to add there. One, you know, well, there are really two reasons that I, I like the story uh, personally. All the judges had different things to say, and, 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 and Stan, uh, I know, wrote you a nice note about, why, about, about what he liked about it. Um, but uh, I really liked it because it was a story about, it is a story about coalitional politics. That that is funny, and that has uh, it has a sense of humor. It's got a lot of really, you know, all of those interesting sort of alienation effect details to know you've been thrown into a different kind of world. But you know, in grad school, we read a lot of very dry, uh, you know, preachy books about coalitional politics, about different types of people with slightly or very sometimes different agendas coming together to work on on one sort of political or social project, and that's what the story's about. But it's not it's not preachy, and it's uh, it's irreverent, and that's that's what I, I, I thought that was a, a really neat trick you pulled off. The other thing is it it really captured what we wanted to do. Well, one of the things we wanted to do with the book more generally, which was to show how the climate crisis or climate chaos or again whatever word you like for it mm-hmm. um, affects different places very differently. Like depending on where you are, you know it could even be a good thing, but in some places it's going to be an unmitigated catastrophe. Uh, Florida is a place that will be utterly transformed by climate change, uh, and uh, but we wanted to show how, you know, the lo- local cultures and social structures would affect the different possible responses to climate change that there could be, and hopefully would shape very different stories. And Andrew and Adam did a really good job capturing uh, Florida, which you know is a is, is is a really unique and uniquely threatened place. You know, we're really interested in telling a story about coalitional politics and. You know, something that wasn't an action story, something that wasn't uh, about guns or or violence or anything like that, but was instead uh, about having to organize and negotiate with people. So our main character was uh, a negotiator, basically. There's and gators. In and the, there, in but there is gator there wrestling. Gators there's there's fighting <laughs> robots. There's a little bit pirates, of pirates. There's, there's, there's pirates. Um, so I think we should probably wrap it up. Folks can find the uh, what we're calling the Everything Change Climate Fiction Contest 
and uh, the outcome of our first contest, which is called Everything Changed. We like that title so much. It's, a, it's from a Margaret Atwood quote, so we, we, we borrowed it for our contest because we liked it so much for the book. You can find both of those at the Imagination and Climate Futures website, which is climateimagination.asu.edu. Um, I'd also like to plug uh, something else climate-related, which is that um, I'm, uh, I co-edited a book uh, called uh, A Year Without a Winter that uh, is nonfiction and fiction about our changing climate. And uh, I was one of the uh, fiction editors for that book, uh, and it's coming out this spring from Columbia University Press. Mm -hmm. So you can go to their website and pre-order it. And uh, it has great fiction in it um, by four really uh, talented and well-regarded science fiction writers, Nancy Kress, Tobias Bakel, Madonna Singh, and uh, Nettie Okorafor. Uh, but more importantly, the contest. And you can check out Andrew's story and enter the current contest at uh, climateimagination.asu.edu. Before we go, uh, you'll have the final word, Andrew, but I just thought it would be cool to go around and for people new to Clifi, maybe suggest some of your favorite books or, or authors in, in the genre. Yeah. I'm going to, mine's the most new. So I would say, uh, you know, thinking back, uh, because I am new to the genre, uh, Michael Moorcock, who uh, I've read his entire 17 book Eternal Champion series, and some of the novellas and short stories in there, they're, you know, it's a hot world or it's an all ice world. So, and there's stories of, humans going off planet and looking for a new home. So I think it, it fits in there, whether it, it wasn't a thing then, but looking back now, and then uh, I'm a huge fan of uh, Do Android Dream of Robotic Sheep. I think uh, Philip K. Dick, as the TV world is realizing now, it was a really far-thinking and insightful writer. I can go. So I'm going to name just two good places to start. Um, one of them is... Uh, Paolo Bacigalupi's short story, The Tamarisk Hunter, which I believe you can find uh, for free online. Uh, it's kind of a, a good starting place. He's written some amazing novels, but to see if you like his style and to kind of get into uh, his head and worldview, that's a great place to start. Again, that's called The Tamarisk Hunter. Another one is a huge anthology, uh, which will give you a primer on climate fiction and, and turn you into a bit of, a, of, of an expert on it, and it's called Loosed Upon the World and it was edited by John Joseph Adams, and it includes, I think, like 40 short stories. Mm -hmm. uh, and it includes, you know, a, a bunch of really talented and, and sort of famous authors, a few older pieces, and, and, and a few really talented authors who are, who are really only known inside the science fiction genre, but, but deserve a lot more attention than they get, so. Yeah, that's a great collection. Um, I think I will mention a novel that I was pretty high on last year uh, called American War, which is about a second civil war. And it's really about, you know, engages uh, on first glance mostly with the way the, the sort of cultural divides between red and blue America and the South and the rest of the country have lingered and, and, and mutated over the years. But creeping behind all of that is the changing climate and the way that those changes are pushing these cultural hostilities to the brink in a way that I think is really interesting. And The author there is Omar Alakad. Yes. Uh, so that's American War. Um, and, you know, we, 
we mentioned Stan Robinson a lot. His uh, most recent book was New York 2140, about a, a future flooded New York, the Super Venice. Uh, and I think he's also written very interestingly about the climate in uh, many of his other novels, you know, some of them very explicitly about climate change, like 40 Signs of Rain, uh, but also in um, his book 2312, he, he gives us a term that I think is being used more and more often called the dithering, which is sort of the, a, a very pessimistic way of thinking about uh, what we have been up to for the last 30 years on climate change. Okay. So, uh, and TSR, the Sustainability Review, you can find us online and on social media. I'll tune in. All right. I'll be listening also. All right. Well, thank, thank you guys you. so much for having me on. Yeah, it was such a pleasure. Thanks for listening.